Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Brandon Roten. Brandon, thank you very much for joining me today. Happy to be here, Charlie. I always say I'm super excited with every single guest, but you're someone when I reached out and I actually got a response from you, I was super stoked and over the moon. And I'm really excited to dig into the topic at hand today. But before we kind of dig into that, can we just kind of start with your career journey today? You've had a really interesting career. Some would have called you maybe the original gangster of like sassy fast food restaurants. I'd love to kind of hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yeah, so uh, I'd credit the team with that much more than me. But uh, I started out in marketing on the agency side. I think if you're going into marketing, agencies are a great place to drink from the fire hose, learn really, really fast, understand how to build media and campaigns and teams and all that stuff. That led me to Wendy's, where uh, a new kind of management team was coming in. And the, the brand was in a position where it wasn't growing for a long time. And the new team was intended to reposition the brand and, and rework it. And as part of that, I got to build the digital social team for Wendy's this is back in 2011 timeframe. Yeah. After some testing and some repositioning that led us to doing the cool stuff that they started to do on social, the team started to do on social and they kind of kept giving me things to do at Wendy's. So by the end, I was running all consumer facing communications, advertising, uh, media, all that stuff. Wow. That led me to become the CMO of Papa John's. I was only there for about a year. And the reason was I was there during a pretty tumultuous time uh, that ultimately saw John leaving the brand. So the kind of the founder mm-hmm. of the brand. Then I went to Potbelly, where I got a totally different challenge. Got to rework a menu, rework a pricing structure, all the other side of marketing, and kind of decided to hang it up at, at about 40. So I decided to semi retire and frankly got pulled back into consulting and a bunch of other stuff just because. Uh, I got bored, drove my wife nuts, you know, all that stuff. So that's what I've been doing the last about year and a half, uh, two years is helping out friends in the in the industry that, that sort of need uh, to reposition, rework, build a team, whatever. But yeah, I think the, the claim to fame is is probably the Wendy's work, even though if you add up all the rest, it probably is more, more dollars. Fair enough. Fair enough. I want to dive a bit more into the Wendy's thing. You kind of talked about how you kind of had, you know, this green light to, to reposition and explore really different strategies, quite frankly, because at the time, like thinking back to as soon as you said, yeah, I started there in 2011, my mind went like, holy crap, what was the kind of time and place back then? And like, you know, we think about that now in 2022, we're like, yeah, duh, this is, you know, kind of how things roll. But back then it was like probably like being Christopher Columbus and being like, what is this kind of thing? Like we're in a new land. Can you kind of talk about what that mindset was like and some of the successes or, or things that maybe you didn't expect happen? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one, it's it's important to understand context, like you said. So back in 2011, the hot brands sort of in the space were folks like Chipotle and Five Guys. Yeah. And it, it was these new kind of generation of QSRs that were coming in. This degree of restaurants that were starting to emerge as fast food. Yeah. The Wendy's of the world, the Arby's of the world, you, you name the brand, were kind of stale at that time. And, and it was showing up in the sales. It was showing up in traffic numbers. The people who were dominating were these new guys. Yeah. In part, the reason for that was the brands that grew up in the 80s and the early 90s had a playbook, right? And the playbook was essentially... You scale media through traditional means, mostly television, and that results in a lot of awareness, which then causes trial and blah, 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 blah. So there were all these correlations between traditional media and result that people were following. They just quit working in the early 2000s for most brands. Uh, Some brands were were still 
figuring it out. Like Taco Bell was pretty hot then, you know, they yeah. had some cool stuff going on, but most fast food restaurants weren't sort of in that vein yet. So the impetus for bringing in a digital function to Wendy's from the new CEO and the management that came in was yeah. essentially we're seeing something in in this news QSRs, these new fast food, fast yeah. casual, and we're seeing something in folks like Taco Bell that we wish we had. So I was brought in to help build that. And because the history was all in this traditional media, there was a lot of testing and a lot of, frankly, heartburn associated with actually <laughs> trying this new stuff because the belief was, well, hey, we grew up with this other stuff. So why don't we just do this other stuff really well? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that context certainly was that there was a bet being made that this new form of, of communication would be successful, but it took a lot of trial to get to the point where it was it was accepted, probably two years, a year and a half. Of, wow. And that's, that's a long time. I'm thinking back through it. Like when I think the Wendy's brand pre-2011, I think of like Dave Thomas in the commercials with like the girl, the Wendy with the red hair, like her kind of like with her dad and then like massive kind of switch. And I guess where my brain goes is I feel that sometimes I've seen marketers and I've felt this myself where almost like this is how we've always done it has kind of been a crutch or this goes against our brand and just brand can be a crutch for things to like keep change at bay. How do you navigate something like that? Because like you didn't go from like a little change. It went from like home style, homey to like, nope, opposite side of the pendulum. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you, it feels much slower inside than it does outside. And and a company of that size, it takes years to make these sort of changes and a lot of small tests that essentially help prove that you're not going to break something and it's actually going to improve something. Yeah. So it, it feels much slower, but the way we did it as a team, and it certainly wasn't just me, there were you know people above me yep. and at my level and below me that were part of this process. What we did essentially was small tests. So mm-hmm. we said, well, first we need to reposition the brand. So how do we reposition younger? You know, you said it, Dave was what people knew over a certain age, under a certain age, there was kind of nothing that connected them to to Wendy's, maybe the products, but that's about it. Yeah. And then we had to run a bunch of small tests. Let's do this with Facebook and see what happens. Let's do this with Twitter and see what happens. Let's run more media that the message starts to shift and be a little more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And what I had to keep using as my crutch was, well, this actually, what we're doing is is just an articulation of what we did in the 80s. Yeah. Think back, right? When In the 80s, when they ran things like Where's the Beef? That's the first time a brand called out other brands yeah. and said, your product isn't living up to what it should. It's garbage. Yeah. And it was aggressive at the time, very aggressive. In fact, most of the franchisees at the time didn't even like it in the 80s. <laughs> So it was very similar kind of an attack. We said, well, what's the, what is the modern articulation of that? Interesting. And the modern articulation of challenging the industry to do better was what we started to do in social. We started yeah. you know, picking on other brands. We started you know, running all sorts of digital campaigns that were very different than what everybody else ran. If you, you go back and look at like the history, we won our first major creative award as a brand ever in 2012. Ever. Huh. It was almost 50 years old at that point, And it was the first time we ever won a creative award. Yeah. And it was for digital video where we had Nick Lachey sing to a cheeseburger. And the whole <laughs> thing. You start to do these things that break the ice, that that create permission to say, okay, this is starting to work. Yeah. People are starting to talk about this. You know, a younger generation is starting to respond to this stuff. It is a slow arduous process that you have to have faith that your research and your foundation, we are repositioning for this purpose. Yeah. 
valid and little wins start adding up and then it starts to snowball. And it took a long time. I mean, literally, we didn't have kind of our first major coverage of the work until probably 2013. So two wow. years plus. And we started winning awards in 2012. And we started really getting more attention in 2014 and 2015. Yeah. And, you know, the, the kind of the tweet, the nuggets for Carter tweet didn't have yeah. until 16 or 17. Yeah. So all these moments, they add up. Yeah. Times. They start to create faith internally that this works. So you have to move slow, but deliberately and constantly go back to the reason why you're doing the thing. Yeah. There's something that I want to touch on that you just said that I didn't really realize, but it just clicked for me is going back to what you did in the 80s, where kind of calling out other companies about their frozen beef or whatever. That is a fascinating internal communication tactic that you used to convince them to try something. And I think I've had other guests on here before, a guy named John John Huntinghouse. He's the CMO at Tab Bank in Utah. And he was talking about the, the need for alignment in language to get things done behind the scenes internally. And yeah. that, like, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's it. Like, these people have already done bold things. It just hasn't been for a while. And if you point that out to them to be like, Hey, we've done stuff like this before. Remember this, Th then that like aligns with the brand. And like, if it was done back then, it can be done again now, that sort of thing. So that's fascinating. I didn't really put two and two together until you just said that. And I mean, what a brilliant strategy because half like, you know, for any marketer listening out there, we know that a lot of time we're just trying to get internal buy-in to get everybody rowing in the same direction. Yeah, totally. And, and I think, I think most brands when they're young, do really cool things that make them get attention. And as they get older, they get much more conservative because it's yeah. all about protecting what you have and less about you know growing at an exponential rate anymore. Yeah. So I, I advise every marketer to say, you you got to remember why the brand got cool in the first place. Why did mm -hmm. you become famous in the first place? And if you can unearth that and then figure out a way to spin that in a modern context, your chances of success are so much better. One, because of the internal thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Because people will immediately say, well, I understand the reference that you're going back to. I understand yeah. this worked you know, X years ago and therefore should work again. And it's true to what our DNA is as a brand. I think another reason it actually works is because there was magic in that original thing. Totally. Otherwise, you wouldn't have grown. Yep. So go back to that magic if you can and, and build on it. Mm -hmm. Huh. That is so interesting. Okay, we could talk about Wendy's all day, but I we have other topics to talk about. So I do want to switch gears here. Talking kind of about the topic of the episode here, you know, I, we've kind of titled this episode Lessons from Social Media Manager to CEO. You've been in a really interesting spot in that, you know, you've kind of worked on the social digital side and then gone up to leading whole kind of organizations from a marketing perspective. You touched on it in your intro, just around like doing things like pricing and creating a new menu. As someone who worked in social myself, I couldn't imagine having to design a new menu or maybe do pricing stuff like that. So can you kind of just talk about that journey for you? Like how did it kind of progress and what can social managers do to kind of become bigger players within their company? Yeah. So I think the, the benefit of being someone who runs digital social for an organization is you are really on the front lines and you have more data than most other people have, especially yep. at a big company, right? So your ability to actually get in touch with what the customers want, what moves them, what makes them, you know, what what makes them act towards your brand, what makes them participate with your brand, you, you know things others don't. Yep. So my suggestion is you have to start thinking about the bigger problems, the bigger reasons that people aren't coming to you or the bigger reasons they are coming to you. And usually they come through pretty clearly 
in that in that digital world that you're playing in, right? You can see what interests people, what draws them in, what what turns them off. You have to be able to take that from just the context of how it works within a particular platform and go bigger than that. I, I really believe a marketer must be, I don't care what function you're on, you have to be media agnostic. You just have to not care the channel of communication. Yeah. You have to care where your customer is and where they make decisions. And then what can you use to influence their decisions? And ultimately, social, digital are great paths to start in. But if you start thinking about those bigger problems and think and think in media agnostic terms, video is video. It doesn't matter where it happens. In fact, brand communications are brand communications. It doesn't matter if they're video or if they're text or if yeah. they're email or what they are. If you start thinking bigger and then you let the tactics kind of ladder up to that bigger objective, your world starts to shift really quickly. Mm-hmm. And if you find yourself ever saying, I just wish I, this other thing worked better, or I wish this other thing worked as well as this digital channel, or I wish TV was as measurable, you have no excuses anymore. Everything is measurable now. Everything is, is able to be influenced by anybody in an organization. Anything can impact the customer. So think about those larger problems. We never would have solved the issues we had at Wendy's if we just would have said, uh, let's be funny on Twitter. It's yeah. had to start with something bigger. It had to start yeah. with we need to reposition this brand to reach a younger audience. And in doing that, we're going to use mechanisms like digital social and let's test to those mechanisms and what works actually might make its way to television, might make its way to other places. You just have to, you have to stop getting stuck in your channel. You have to know yeah. your channel. So don't, that doesn't, don't confuse that with don't know your channels, but you can't get stuck in them. You have to think about how do I solve these objectives more broadly and get the organization to participate in the means of solving these problems. We have. Totally. I think what I've seen at least is a lot of people will hone in on that specific output, but to your point, that's a tactic and that tactic ladders up to a strategy and that strategy ladders up to a marketing objective and that marketing objective better be supporting a business objective, right? And all those things need to be linked together. And the balance I think to strike the, the, the art in this is you have to understand all those levels and have solid logic that backs it without analysis paralysis. Yes. Because the other side of this is you still have to act. You have to put stuff in the world. So you have to test things and get things out. Yeah. I think the two main causes of failure at organizations for marketing programs are because you don't have that logic ladder worked out that gets you all the way to the business objective. Yeah. That's one side. And the other side is you spend all your time on that. So you don't actually put anything in the world. Nobody sees your damn PowerPoints. Nobody. Yeah. They see the work. So you have to find the balance between those two things so you can execute and learn as you execute while you're confident that you're achieving those larger business objectives. And there's very few people who play right in the middle of those two things, which is where the magic happens. That's where Mm -hmm. you actually get stuff done. Yeah. I always say it's so funny. We say this internally with a lot of our clients. Like at the end of the day, marketers have to do shit. (laughs) It sounds crude, but it's like, you know, like art for the sake of commerce, commerce being the keyword to drive commerce, you need to do things. <laughs> you, know, you, do. you totally do. And you need to measure those things and they have to ladder up to business objectives. So exactly. the balance between figuring out, okay, this logically will help us accomplish our business objectives through that chain that you described yeah. while actually putting things in the world. Like I, I always tell my team, it's okay to put things in that are half-baked and that yep. doesn't sound good. You're not, and, and some people will be like, oh, you're not proud of that work yet? The things that have won awards, gotten 
Wendy's and other companies I've worked for up the lions, like big time awards are things that oftentimes are three quarters of the way there that you mm -hmm. look at like, that's not perfect yet. I wish I could change it. And I think that's true in all endeavors, you know, artists yeah. go back, they get, you know, a song they wrote and be like, I do so much better today than I did five years ago. Even though that was a number one hit. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. So make sure the chain's right, but get things in the world ship. Yeah. And you got to ship stuff on a regular basis so you can learn and yeah. that lets you get better with each execution. Yeah. And shortening that feedback loop, right? So it's like, get that stuff out there, get the feedback, reevaluate, get it back out there and, and, and like kind of shorten that cycle because yeah, you know, I've seen brands kind of sit there for a year. Oh, we just have to get it just right. And then like the, the world has changed. So they've been, they maybe started planning on, you know, that how the world was based on doing this, this, this. And then by the time they're ready to go, they're like, Oh, that's actually not true anymore. And you're like, what did you just do for the last year? And you learn so much on the iterations. It's unreal. I mean, yeah. we, we did not know how far we could push in social for Wendy's until we did. Yeah. That's how we learned. We learned how far to push, you know? So you have to put things in the world that you're confident ladder up to your bigger business objective. I yeah. That's the, that's the trick. Yeah. Super well said. I want to talk a little bit about the creative process. So you've, you know, we've kind of talked about not getting stuck on one specific medium and start with an objective, understand your audience and, and then kind of get creative. Can you just kind of talk through your creative process? What are kind of maybe some guiding principles for creativity? How should marketers approach this? Because oftentimes I've heard in the past from different folks, whether it can be hard to be creative or they maybe feel like their creativity is being stifled because they're being pushed a certain way because of some sort of insight. What's your take on that? Yeah. So I think creative works great in a box. I really do. I think yeah. you have to give parameters yeah. that create an expectation, not necessarily of a medium of output, which I think is the flaw in most briefs. Most briefs say produce a 30 second TV ad or yeah. whatever it is, but more in like intention, objective to solve for target that you're trying to associate with. So actually, let me do this backwards if you don't mind. Yeah. So when I look at a piece of creative, I have three things I ask myself. Um, one is, will the target care? And implicit in that, is you understand who you're actually targeting. And I think that's absolutely critical because everything to everyone doesn't work. When I hear somebody say, everybody with a wallet and a mouth is my customer at a restaurant, I vomit in my mouth. You can't do that. That's not how the world works. Everyone is not your customer. <laughs> everyone is never your customer. That nothing ever applies to everyone ever. Yeah. So I don't think that works. Coca-Cola does not have everyone and they are gargantuan, right? <laughs> that's how it works. So one is, will the target care? Also implicit in that is you understand what interests the target, not just who the target is, like, you know, maybe demographically, more psychographically is usually what I'm more interested in, but, but what interests them? What piques their interest? What grabs their attention? Which is really important. Creative job, primarily, I think, is to grab attention first and then communicate something. So one, will the target care? The second question I have is, does it build the brand? And that one's a little trickier, but really when you get down to it, you have defined what your brand is. So yeah. you're fundamentally saying, I choose to convey this to the world. So is this actually building up on that base I've decided? So if we said, you know, go back to Wendy's, we said, we're going to challenge the industry to do better. That's who we are. We, we call that challenger with charm internally is what we call it. Yep. So we're going to challenge the industry to do better. And if we're doing that, is what we're doing challenging the industry to do better? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, then you don't do it. So you gotta break down, you know, will the target care? Understand the target, understand what they care about. Does it build a brand? And the last thing is, what's the one thing? 
Because what they do in briefs, I think, all the time is they cram in, like, say these 25 things. No, you got one thing you can let them walk away with. So what is the critical thing they walk away with in the context of building the brand, in the context of does the target care? So to me, if you can answer those three questions by, if you can brief someone in a way that lets them understand what the one thing is that you need to communicate, who the target is and what they care about. And what the brand is, so what we want to build upon for the brand, and ideally the singular thing the brand's famous for, you're in really good shape. Mm -hmm. And there's a million other ways to tackle this, but to me, that creates a nice little box. It creates this little scenario that says, I understand what I'm trying to communicate, who I'm trying to communicate to, what that person cares about, and ultimately, does it actually enhance someone's perception of a brand or does it detract from it? Yeah. I that's think the way I, that's the way I always know I think about creative. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And there is probably, I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I think there is a quote, some sort of famous quote out there where it's like, you need restraints to be creative. That's why it's actually creative. I think it's 100% true. Because if you just say, if you tell somebody and omit one of those three things to me, so you omit, just give them the one thing. Well, the one thing can be expressed in a million ways yeah. to a million different groups. Yeah. So. I think those are the three constraints that need to be applied. And, and, and I, I, the way I've always gotten to creative or the way I've consistently, not always, but gotten yeah. to creative, I'm really proud of and ultimately moves a brand and, and wins awards and all that stuff is the brief and the evaluation of the same thing. Yeah. So you create those constraints and then you compare it against the constraints. And yeah. it's really important to understand all those elements. So uh, for example, will the target care? If we're trying to sell salads. Wendy's is the number two seller of salads in the world. Panera is number one. Wendy's is number two. If we're trying to sell salads, I am not the customer. I don't eat a lot of salads. <laughs> so I need to know, will the target care? So I have to understand the target. I understand what they care about. And I have to actually have empathy for that target and divorce my own views yeah. of whether the creative is good from whether the target will think the creative is compelling. So, so it requires you to do all these this mental gymnastics that, I, that are awesome to me. I think it's great, but are really hard. Yeah. And, ultimately lead, I think, to much, much better work. So I would use those three questions, steal them all day long, and potentially apply that to how you think about creative or creative development. Absolutely. So if you're listening, steal those. I'm going to steal those. (laughs) Hey, it's Charlie here, and I hope that you're enjoying the episode so far. If you are, I want to encourage you to check out the Right Metric Insight Library. It's a free library of data-backed research that we've put together to help strategists just like you build your digital strategy based on facts and not assumptions. It's full of strategy teardowns and examples from fast-growing brands that have already helped thousands of marketers identify content opportunities, focus on the right white space channels, improve their media strategies, and benchmark against competitors. So if you want to set up a free account, you can head to rightmetric.co slash insight library, or just look for a link in the show notes wherever you're watching or listening to this. So with that, I want to thank you again for tuning in, and I'll let you get back to the episode. One thing you just said there that was spicy, which I think a lot of marketers fall into this trap is not being able to kind of separate themselves or divorce themselves from their own personal opinion when making a decision for an audience or if an audience is going to like something. The amount of times that I've been in creative reviews with people are like, I love it. It looks great. And I'm like, that's cool. You're not the target. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? What do you, do you kind of have any tips on how to I guess it would be going back to that framework, but is that something that you've yeah. noticed in the past? So I think that's why it's so important to define who the target is and what they care about before yeah. you actually look at any creative. Yeah, It is a, I think, time in thing for marketers. Yeah. 
And it, you have to do this a million times before you get to the point where you can divorce yourself from your own opinions and apply yep. the opinions of what you think the target will believe yep. about. It's really, really hard. And, and you got to be careful too. You can't say you're not the target because that's such a cliche thing <laughs> that just lets you dismiss everyone's opinion. So to me, you have to first describe who the target is, what they care about, and then reinforce if you get pushback, why the target will actually like the thing. Yep. If you have any testing that you can do, it, it helps prove that the target will care about the thing. Yeah. So, I mean, and I give huge credit to, you know, go back to Wendy's, but really at any role. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, when the CMO of Wendy's or CEO of Wendy's, and, and I had, I think, four or five CMOs, and I had one uh, CEO at Wendy's in, in my run there. When I would show them things and they didn't get it, they trusted me enough to know that my empathy actually was valid. Even if I wasn't the target, that if I believed in it, they were willing to give it a shot. That takes time and trust, yeah. right? You do a bunch of things before people will really believe you. But that is a skill set for, I think, the executive level that is rare. So if you're a marketer and you find someone who's actually capable of doing that, hold on to that person. Yeah. Because it, it is rare that someone will accept that. They Everyone starts with their own gut reaction to the thing. And I think the people that can get around that and say, you know, I actually know this about the target and the people presenting this to me, they believe in it for a reason. So therefore, I'm, I'm willing to, to take a bet on this thing. And if you can do any testing that helps validate it, that is really, really helpful. So oftentimes, if I brought in something really controversial that I knew would get pushback, I would uh, do just a little bit of testing that would say, hey, you know, this is actually showing promise. So I think it will work. And you know what? Because we're going to run it the way we're going to run it, the risk is low because I can always pull it after X weeks or X yeah. impressions or whatever this thing is. Yeah. So basically, the I think about the lesson is like, if you're going to come and, and have something controversial, provocative, come with some proof, come with some evidence. Yeah. And if yeah. you have a very emotional, non-empathetic group that you know you're pitching to, yeah. um, the more evidence, the better. Yeah. Absolutely. Even it might not come through. The reason most creative is bad is it dies in an, in an organization. You kind of alluded to that earlier, right? Oh, yeah. Most creative that's good dies in the process before it gets out to the world. Yeah. Now that's not saying all things should get out to the world. Bad creative comes out all the time that people are really excited about. Yeah. But yeah, that that's a tough thing. I definitely feel like there's a marketoonist cartoon out there where it shows like a piece of creative dying around a boardroom table because you know 25 people have their opinion. But that's a, that's another talk show. I want to talk a little bit about a post you did earlier this year where the kind of whole thesis of the post was. No C-suite executives care about reach. How did you kind of learn to speak the language of the C-suite? You know, specifically talking about maybe the value of social or or various, yeah. you know, digital things. You know, that I think is something, how do you, playing translator is such a, an important part of being an effective marketing leader's job. How did you build that skill for yourself? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm always great at it, but I, I would <laughs> tell you, I have never had an argument with a CFO or a CEO about um, a media metric related to marketing. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason for that really boils down to they have to understand how things ladder up to the business objective and all the leading indicators, things like likes and impressions and follower counts and you know reach and CPM, efficiency of reach and click-through rate and all that stuff. Until you have solid correlations between those things and your outcomes, your business outcomes, nobody believes them. And sometimes you have to fight previous you know, assumptions. I mean, I, we talked about the transition to digital for some of the companies I've, I've worked with. Yeah. Oftentimes they had assumptions about, you know, GRPs equal sales. 
And that's not always true. It depends yeah. on the company and the problem they're trying to solve. So when you get down to it, I have found you have to talk in terms of this is how we're influencing the business objective. And these are the correlations I have and the confidence in those correlations that tell me my leading indicators are saying I will impact those. And then you have to have duration of you know experience with someone so they actually believe the correlations. But I mean, how I learned was rejection, right? Yeah. That's how we all learn, right? Touching the stove. You go, that's right. You go and you pitch something. And if you're in PR and you pitch like media impressions and someone says, every time someone comes up, it's like 10 million media impressions plus, and I don't see it in the business. I just don't see it in the numbers. Eventually you get to the point where it's like, nobody cares about that thing because they don't, they can't equate it to something that they're actually held accountable for. Yeah. Your CEO is not held accountable to the follower account you have on Instagram. They're just not. <laughs> They're held accountable to something much bigger than that, which you then are responsible to understand the connections between whatever it is you're doing digital social and that yeah. outcome. To me, reach is inconsequential for a C-level discussion. If you're pitching your C-level, you have to talk in terms of how you're going to achieve your business objectives and the confidence you have that the tactics you're taking and the leading indicators that you have will actually equate to that result. So I love to do things like pre-post-meta control studies. Yeah. I love pre-post-meta controls, which I was taught how to do by a brand manager, a woman named Liz Garrity at Wendy's, because I was a digital guy. We didn't do stuff like that. So, I mean, she showed me how to do it, I think in 2011 or something like that, where literally you look at lift of trend after stimulus is applied. Yeah. You have a control market that then you apply stimulus you know, to a market and then you leave the control market trend before, measure the trend during stimulus, measure the trend after stimulus. And that's an old school marketing technique that works for every campaign ever, as long as the scale is big enough that it will has potential to impact the business. Mm -hmm. So when I have a client come and say, I don't, I don't believe my marketing metrics, they keep coming and saying, we're doing awesome because we're getting likes. I say, well, once you have a big effort, do a control group. Do a pre-post yeah. control, and that will give you a great read. And you could put tools in place that give you that as a continuous read. Things like marketing evolution does that. Things like Nielsen studies, things like brand list studies, these other things that once you define your correlations to your business outcomes, you know, associated with whatever your problems are you're trying to solve, you know, it gets it gets much easier. It takes time though. You know, your average CMO, I think, spends 24 months or 18 months or something like that in, in market. It probably takes you a year to get to the point where you really have any of those correlations. So you better run some shortcuts yeah. to try to at least prove that it's working like a pre-post and then a control. Yeah. And I have a feeling I know your answer to this next question, but how much of being an effective strategist, whether it's social, digital, just marketing in general, is about going with your gut versus informing your approach with data studies, best practices, insights, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I think your gut gets better as you get older mm -hmm. for different things. Yeah. Your, your gut is pretty good on the small stuff when yeah. you're young and hungry mm -hmm. because you are more connected to like what is, what is going to cause an immediate response. Yeah. It's better on like what's going to work over time the more you actually have time in the world and yeah. the more you do things. So for me anyways, I try not to make a decision based on my first gut reaction, but I know what it is. Yeah. I know what it is. So I can go back to it and say, yeah, this has been reinforced with enough data now that this is the right thing. Yeah. When I deal with people who just want your gut reaction, they say, that's all that matters, brain is gut. My response usually is, and this is a line that I, I probably stole from somebody, but I've used it so many times, like, I reserve the right to get smarter. <laughs> so as the I data like comes in, you know, I just, I reserve the right to get smarter here. 
Yeah. So I, I start with a gut reaction. I note what it is. And then I do a little digging just to say, hey, it, it, is this really? Because again, you're not the target sometimes. Yeah. Oftentimes. So you have to do a little homework to understand, is this real or is this not real? Yeah. Frankly, I just think your gut for longer term things develops over time. So you can make fast decisions on longer term things, the more experience you have. Mm -hmm. But you got to have the wisdom to check yourself and make sure that you're not just jumping on something to jump on something. Yeah. There's a phrase that we use internally, and it's this idea of informed intuition. Example, client X, maybe they've worked in as a, you know, a marketer at a bank for 20 years and they came up before digital was a thing, but now they're kind of running digital using research insights data to your point, like reserve the right to get smarter. You need that balance of both. Like, like don't throw out the 20 years of, of knowledge that you have about the brand and the industry. It's just understand that like maybe that approach of, Hey, we've always done it this way. Isn't necessarily going to work for the next 20 years and having that balance between kind of art and science. And I've found too, when I sat on the brand side where I'd maybe have a hunch about something, but you couldn't prove it. And, you know, it probably didn't make sense to kind of blow the doors off the thing and like go really hard at it. But then we'd kind of get some research or whatever, some sort of study that came in that would really kind of highlight, oh, damn, there's something here for us to kind of go after. And it was kind of like, how can we use that information to inform our intuition to then make the best decision for the business? I think you're totally right. It is It is informed gut is a great place to be. And it's okay to, to note that initial response because there's value in that gut choice. But I just think your percentages start to shift as you get older is yep. what happened. You know, I'm yep. probably right 65, 70% of the time now. When I was in my 20, I was probably right 40 or 50% of the time I was left. <laughs> so that it just shifts. And, and really, it does change depending on the length of the thing. And yep. I, that sounds strange, but... The more you're in, the more you understand how something plays out over time because you've seen a hundred examples of it. Yeah. So I actually trust my gut more on the like, is it does this have legs to last for years or weeks? Yeah. Then I do, does this last for weeks? Like I can't tell you what's going to be viral on TikTok tomorrow, but I can kind of tell you where video is headed across social. Yeah. I've seen enough at this point that I kind of understand where it's going. So I just think your context changes over time. And that's a good thing because yeah. you want that variety in your decision-making. I just think about it also, it's like you've stood at the plate so many times, you've had so many at-bats where you're just like, you start to see patterns and you start to see things emerge and and you start to make connections for things that maybe weren't, you know, wouldn't be two connections in your brain two years ago. But now after seeing a few more things, you're like, oh, that thing and that thing are actually connected. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I want to kind of dive into examples of things that you're excited about. So is there any kind of social marketing from brands that has kind of stood out to you in the first part of this year or maybe even last year? Like what have you seen recently where you're like, yo, that was sick? Yeah. I mean, uh, well, there's all kinds of stuff. And in fact, I have like a little trophy room behind me of things that I collect over time, like yeah. with that stuff and Red Bull's legendary Savannah Bananas. If you don't know those guys, oh my God, these guys are slaying it right now. Just killing okay. it. So I'll talk about some examples here in a yeah. second, but the biggest thing that's interesting to me is as a platform takes off and organic actually is meaningful when that digital social platform, things start really raw and then they get refined and produced as time goes on. Yeah. So if you think about the current like landscape, right? Everybody talks about TikTok right now. TikTok's still pretty raw around the edges. You can totally maybe less today than six months ago, but you can break through there relatively easily with with some interesting ideas and some consistency. So if you put 100 videos in, eventually you're going to break through, right? Yeah. So I think that trend is really interesting. As a new platform emerges, 
as a new style of social or digital emerges, it tends to develop over time. I think streaming is happening. That's happening to streaming right now. Yep. I mean, how many times a year ago did you sit there and watch Hulu and you see the same commercial eight times and you're like, what the hell is going on? What, what is this person thinking? Well, that's starting to get better and better and better. And marketers will figure it out. They're going to make it more produced and more interesting. And sometimes Raw's good, sometimes Raw's not good. Yeah. That's the biggest kind of trend I'm seeing is that streaming, you know, streaming as content, like sit back content yep. through park platforms is developing. Product integration is developing in amazing ways right now where companies like Ben are doing great work or kind of integrating products into experiences. And really the social platform is all about short form video right now. It's Vine revisited, right? That's happening right now. And that's still real raw and real interesting. So I think those are like the, the media style channels of communication, but really when you get down to it, good brands are built on just being a little familiar and then a twist, you know, something that's, different and weird and interesting. And I'll use some examples here. So these guys, Savannah Bananas, and they've got a series that actually starts, I think this week on ESPN. This is a minor league baseball team that just made minor league baseball fun. They are awesome. I've never heard of them. I'm just Googling them right now. You wrote a book. Here it is right here. Jesse Cole. I got a signed copy of Jesse's book. I bought off his website. He signed it with the book. This is a dude who just decided baseball should be fun. We're going to make it fun. And it is killer. The work he's doing is crazy. This place is sold out for like a year in advance. No way. I've never heard of a minor league baseball team with season tickets that are sold out. It doesn't happen. Yeah. He's just blowing it up. So this That's is a crazy example. Just finding an interesting way to break through in a commoditized space. Mm-hmm. And you just have to remember what people are there for. That's the magic of being a good marker. Remember why people show up in the first place mm-hmm. and just leverage that if you can. You don't have to be outrageous. You don't have to be controversial. Yeah. You have to be interesting. You know, my consulting LLC is called Boring Kills Brands. And the reason is, is because fundamentally, you just have to know your target and what they care about and then figure out a way to leverage that in a beneficial way. Yeah. So that that's an example that I would point to that if you are following the Savannah Bananas right now, you need to. They are yeah. telling I'm it definitely going to follow that. <laughs> and there's hundreds of examples, you know, liquid death behind me. These guys, you know, it's canned water for God's sake. They're selling for like 250 at Whole Foods. Yeah. But they're interesting in their approach. Uh, Packy, this, this chip company, they released this, you know, you can't eat it single chip in a tombstone packaging. That's three or four years old now, but they're, they're doing this stuff all the time to, to grab people's attention. Yeah, I, I think the root of really good branding is you figure out what your target wants and then how to actually do that in a way that's interesting. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of nostalgia, so it's familiar, but a twist that yeah. makes it kind of right down the line of what people care about. Yeah. Bingo. I completely agree. One of the things that you just said that I think back to, there's a book on my shelf behind me. It's called Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. And it's basically the science of why things like the science of popularity. And Derek Thompson, he's a writer at The Atlantic and he wrote this book and, and I read it. And one of the things that you just described is actually a principle in the book called the Maya principle, most advanced yet accessible. And it talks mm-hmm. about you need to have that familiarity with a little bit of new. It ha- it needs to be new, but not too new. And yeah. he gives examples of, you know, I think it's like Spotify when they first released their platform, they had their like for you kind of algorithm and they were testing it and it was doing really well. But then they realized there was a bug that was serving up one or two old songs every once in a while. 
So they're like, no, no, this is like for you to find new music. So they squashed the bug and engagement went off a cliff. And so they were like, huh, you need to have that. So, so he gives a bunch of examples of that, whether it's the way Apple rolls out phones. So it's not always this crazy step change. It's like just a little bit incrementally better. And he gives a bunch of examples, but that whole principle, that Maya principle is something that, yeah, you're bang on in terms of like, what is it that is somewhat, it needs to be familiar, but has that new aspect that's just enough for someone to go, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then yeah. you think hopefully aligns directly with what the reason that the target cares in the first place, right? Yeah. Like, that helps reinforce like the love of the brand, the connection. And I'm sure I stole that from one of the awesome creatives I've dealt with. So there's no <laughs> way I'll make that up. Uh, he probably got it from that book. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I know when you boil it down, that just seems to be a root of most of this stuff that works well. It's got this touch yeah. in there that makes it feel like it's safe, but at the same time, interesting and yep. new, different. Yeah. So I think, I think when you get down to it, there are a million examples. I hate it when I hear old school marketing guys talk about, or, or women or whatever, talk about how, you know, all marketing is horrible now, or it's all <laughs> the golden days are gone. Garbage. Yeah. There is so much great marketing in the world right now that it is astonishing. Out of home is better than it's ever been. You know, billboards and stuff like that. 3D billboards are amazing now. Yeah. The fact that you can pull that stuff off. The stuff happening in social the fact that cosmetic brands have figured out an entire new life through TikTok is awesome. Mm -hmm. And it's good stuff. And there's always something new to emerge because the truth is this stuff takes time to develop and yeah. you got to test, you got to try. Yeah. So I think the toolbox is bigger than it's ever been. And it's more exciting to be in market than it's ever been. And you just have to constantly try a little bit here, a little bit there, figure out what works and go back to what are you trying to build for your brand? And, and it also sort of works out. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. I want to ask another question as we kind of start to wind down the episode here. How do you stay up to date on business or marketing? Who are you following? What are you reading? What are you listening to? And I'll give the context. So um, I, I do this on every episode. I dropped out of university. I went to university for a grand total of two months. Um, I don't have a marketing degree. I learned a ton from reading, listening, ta watching, talking to people, that sort of thing. So I always make sure to ask guests, how are you consuming information? Who do you look to? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big reader. So I read a lot of books. In fact, I wrote down Hitmakers after you said it. On planes, I read. Me is the fastest. And on vacations, frankly, I read. I'll go through three or four books on a vacation. I think... I mean, books obviously are a moment in time. They're a snapshot, but there's yeah. so much wisdom to pull out of good to great or, you know, find your why or dozens and dozens of other books that are just awesome. So I'm a big reader. I used to not be. It's really a phenomenon in the last five or 10 years for me that I've, I've become a big reader, but yeah. I'm a big reader. And then I love consuming marketing. So every time I have a team, I have a monthly excellent ads meeting, we call it, yeah. where literally everyone just brings forth the cool stuff they've seen. Yeah, I pay attention to award shows. So I look at Can, I look at Addies, I look at all that stuff. Yeah, Not for the awards, but to learn about what's actually getting attention mm -hmm. and what marketers are talking about. I think marketing is a lot like fashion. Yeah, If you look what works for to win a lion, it's actually usually not what grows sales yet. It's like the cutting edge stuff that in two years will grow sales. Yeah. I mean, I literally saw a campaign last week that looks just like a campaign we put out in 2011 for Wendy's that won in a line. <laughs> and that's awesome. That's great. That history that's, repeats that's itself. How it works. That's how it works, right? And it's okay. But I, I think when you get down to it, if you pay attention to that stuff, you're looking at the bleeding edge stuff. You're watching the fashion show runway, which isn't quite 
mainstream yet. Yeah. And you pay attention to what people share, what peers share. That's the stuff that's becoming more mainstream. And then you look at this stuff and that's the old school stuff. Yeah. That's the stuff that's established and worked and there's case studies on and all the other stuff. Yeah. So I think you need to really be a student of marketing, love brands, love brand marketing, get excited to watch the Super Bowl for the commercials, but also everything else. So yeah. you pay attention to what is, is out there and working. Yeah. And then go back to the classics to understand sort of the fundamentals and and frankly why it works. Totally. Well, I feel like you and I could talk for hours about this stuff. My last question for you, I'm sure there's going to be people listening to this who would love to ask you questions. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of you online? Yeah, probably LinkedIn. Look me up. R-H-O-T-E-N is my last name and there's not a whole lot of us. So <laughs> track me down pretty easy. Brandon Roden, uh, that's probably the best spot is LinkedIn. I do answer DMs when it's not just people trying to sell me stuff. So if you send me a, a message on LinkedIn, odds are I'll reply. Awesome. Well, Brandon, thank you very much for the time. It was really great to have you on. And we're definitely going to have you come back for an episode at some point in the future. Appreciate that. Thanks, Charlie. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.